Chapter Twenty Five, Section Five, Part F of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One, by Karl Marx. Translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part Seven: The Accumulation of Capital. Chapter Twenty Five: The General Law of Capitalist Accumulation. Section Five: Illustrations of the General Law of Capitalist Accumulation. Part F: Ireland. In concluding this section, we must travel for a moment to Ireland. First, the main facts of the case. The population of Ireland had, in 1841, reached eight million. Two hundred twenty-two thousand six hundred sixty-four. In eighteen hundred fifty-one, it had dwindled to six million six hundred twenty-three thousand nine hundred eighty-five. In eighteen hundred sixty-one, to five million eight hundred fifty thousand three hundred nine. In eighteen sixty-six, to five and a half millions, nearly to its level in eighteen o one. The diminution began with the famine year, eighteen forty-six. So that Ireland, in less than twenty years, lost more than five sixteenths of its people. Footnote: Population of Ireland, eighteen hundred and one, five million three hundred nineteen thousand eight hundred sixty-seven persons, eighteen hundred and eleven, six million eighty-four thousand nine hundred ninety-six, eighteen hundred twenty-one, six million eight hundred sixty-nine thousand five hundred forty-four. Eighteen hundred thirty-one, seven million eight hundred twenty-eight thousand three hundred forty-seven. Eighteen hundred forty-one, eight million two hundred twenty-two thousand six hundred sixty-four. And footnote. Its total emigration from May eighteen fifty-one to July eighteen sixty-five numbered one million five hundred ninety-one thousand four hundred eighty-seven. The emigration during the years eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five was more than half a million. The number of inhabited houses fell from eighteen hundred fifty one to eighteen sixty one by fifty two thousand nine hundred ninety. From eighteen fifty one to eighteen sixty one, the number of holdings of fifteen to thirty acres increased sixty one thousand; that of holdings over thirty acres, one hundred nine thousand, whilst the total number of all farms fell. One hundred and twenty thousand, a fall therefore solely due to the suppression of farms under fifteen acres, that is to their centralization. The decrease of the population was naturally accompanied by a decrease in the mass of products. For our purpose, it suffices to consider the five years from eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five, during which over half a million emigrated, and the absolute number of people sank by more than one third of a million. From the table in the text, it results that there was an absolute decrease in horses of seventy-one thousand nine hundred forty-four, an absolute decrease in cattle of one hundred twelve thousand nine hundred sixty, but an absolute increase in sheep of one hundred forty-six thousand six hundred sixty-two, and an absolute increase in pigs of twenty-eight thousand eight hundred twenty-one. Footnote. The result would be found yet more unfavorable if we went further back, 
Thus, sheep in 1865, 3,688,742, but in 1856, 3,694,294. Pigs in 1865, 1,299,893, but in 1858, 1,409,883. End footnote. Let us now turn to agriculture, which yields the means of subsistence for cattle and for man. In the following table is calculated the decrease or increase for each separate year as compared with its immediate predecessor. The cereal crops include wheat, oats, barley, rye, beans, and peas. The green crops, potatoes, turnips, marigolds, beetroot, cabbages, carrots, parsnips, vetches, etc. A summary of the table it shows an absolute decrease of the total cultivated land and an absolute decrease of cereal crop and green crop over the years while the area covered with grass and clover and with flax is increased during those years end of table in the year eighteen sixty five one hundred and twenty seven thousand four hundred and seventy additional acres came under the heading grassland chiefly because the area under the heading of bog and waste unoccupied decreased by 101,543 acres. If we compare 1865 with 1864, there is a decrease in cereals of 246,667 acres, of which 480,999 were wheat, 160,605 oats, 29,892 barley, etc. The decrease in potatoes was 446,398 tons, although the area of their cultivation increased in 1865. From the movement of population and the agricultural produce of Ireland, we pass to the movement in the purse of its landlords, larger farmers, and industrial capitalists. It is reflected in the rise and fall of the income tax. It may be remembered that Schedule D, profits with the exception of those of farmers, includes also the so-called professional profits, that is, the incomes of lawyers, doctors, etc., and the Schedules C and E, in which no special details are given, include the incomes of employees, officers, state sinecurists, state fund holders, etc. Under Schedule D, the average annual increase of income from 1853 to 1864 was only 0 0.93, whilst in the same period in Great Britain it was 4.58. The following table shows the distribution of the profits, with the exception of those of farmers, for the years 1864 and 1865. England a country with fully developed capitalist production and preeminently industrial would have bled to death with such a drain of population as ireland has suffered but ireland is at present only an agricultural district of england marked off by a wide channel from the country to which it yields corn wool cattle industrial and military recruits the depopulation of ireland has thrown much of the land out of cultivation has greatly diminished the produce of the soil and in spite of the greater area devoted to cattle breeding has brought about in some of its branches an absolute diminution in others an advance scarcely worthy of mention and constantly interrupted by retrogressions footnote 
If the product also diminishes relatively per acre, it must not be forgotten that for a century and a half England has indirectly exported the soil of Ireland, without as much as allowing its cultivators the means for making up the constituents of the soil that had been exhausted. End footnote. Nevertheless, with the fall in numbers of the population, rents and farmers' profits rose, although the latter not as steadily as the former. The reason of this is easily comprehensible. On the one hand, with the throwing of small holdings into large ones, and the change of arable into pasture land, a larger part of the whole produce was transformed into surplus produce. The surplus produce increased, although the total produce, of which it formed a fraction, decreased. On the other hand, the money value of this surplus produce increased yet more rapidly than its mass, in consequence of the rise in the English market price of meat, wool, etc., during the last twenty, and especially during the last ten years. The scattered means of production that serve the producers themselves as means of employment and of subsistence, without expanding their own value by the incorporation of the labour of others, are no more capital than a product consumed by its own producer is a commodity. If, with the mass of the population, that of the means of production employed in agriculture also diminished, the mass of the capital employed in agriculture increased, because a part of the means of production that were formerly scattered was concentrated and turned into capital. The total capital of Ireland, outside agriculture, employed in industry and trade, accumulated during the last two decades slowly and with great and constantly recurring fluctuations. So much the more rapidly did the concentration of its individual constituents develop. And, however small its absolute increase, in proportion to the dwindling population it had increased largely. Here, then, under our own eyes and on a large scale, a process is revealed than which nothing more excellent could be wished for by orthodox economy for the support of its dogma. That misery springs from absolute surplus population, and that equilibrium is re-established by depopulation. This is a far more important experiment than was the plague in the middle of the fourteenth century, so belauded of Malthusians. Note further, if only the naivete of the schoolmaster could apply to the conditions of production and population of the nineteenth century, the standard of the fourteenth, this naivete into the bargain overlooked the fact that whilst, after the plague and the decimation that accompanied it, followed on this side of the channel, in England, enfranchisement and enrichment of the agricultural population, on that side, in France, followed greater servitude and more misery. Footnote. As Ireland is regarded as the promised land of the principle of population, T. H. Sadler, before the publication of his work on population, issued his famous book, Ireland, Its Evils and Their Remedies, 2nd edition, London, 1829. Here, by comparison of the statistics of the individual provinces, and of the individual counties in each province, he proves that the misery there is not, as Malthus would have it, in proportion to the number of the population, but in inverse ratio to this. End footnote. The Irish famine of 1846 killed more than one million people, but it killed poor devils only. To the wealth of the country it did not the slightest damage. The exodus of the next twenty years, an exodus still constantly increasing, did not, as, for example, the Thirty Years' War, decimate, along with the human beings, their means of production. Irish genius discovered an altogether new way of spiriting a poor people thousands of miles away from the scene of its misery. The exiles transplanted to the United States, 
sent home sums of money every year as travelling expenses for those left behind. Every troop that emigrates one year draws another after it the next. Thus, instead of costing Ireland anything, emigration forms one of the most lucrative branches of its export trade. Finally, it is a systematic process which does not simply make a passing gap in the population, but sucks out of it every year more people than are replaced by the births, so that the absolute level of the population falls year by year. Footnote. Between 1851 and 1874, the total number of emigrants amounted to 2,325,922. What were the consequences for the Irish labourers left behind and freed from the surplus population? That the relative surplus population is today as great as before 1846, that wages are just as low, that the oppression of the labourers has increased, that misery is forcing the country towards a new crisis. The facts are simple. The revolution in agriculture has kept pace with emigration. The production of relative surplus population has more than kept pace with the absolute depopulation. A glance at Table C shows that the change of arable to pasture land must work yet more acutely in Ireland than in England. In England, the cultivation of green crops increases with the breeding of cattle. In Ireland, it decreases. Whilst a large number of acres that were formerly tilled lie idle or are turned permanently into grassland, a great part of the wasteland and peat bogs that were unused formerly become of service for the extension of cattle breeding. The smaller and medium farmers, I reckon among these all who do not cultivate more than 100 acres, still make up about 8 out of 10 of the whole number. Footnote. According to a table in Murphy's Ireland Industrial, Political and Social, 1870, 94.6% of the holdings do not reach 100 acres, 5.4 exceed 100 acres. End footnote. They are one after the other, and with a degree of force unknown before, crushed by the competition of an agriculture managed by capital, and therefore they continually furnish new recruits to the class of wage labourers. The one great industry of Ireland, linen manufacture, requires relatively few adult men, and only employs altogether, in spite of its expansion since the price of cotton rose in 1861 to 1866, a comparatively insignificant part of the population. Like all other great modern industries, it constantly produces, by incessant fluctuations, a relative surplus population within its own sphere, even with an absolute increase in the mass of human beings absorbed by it. The misery of the agricultural population forms the pedestal for gigantic shirt factories, whose armies of laborers are, for the most part, scattered over the country. Here we encounter again the system described above of domestic industry, which in underpayment and overwork possesses its own systematic means for creating supernumerary laborers. Finally, although the depopulation has not such destructive consequences as would result in a country with fully developed capitalistic production, it does not go on without constant reaction upon the home market. The gap which emigration causes here limits not only the local demand for labor, but also the incomes of small shopkeepers, artisans, tradespeople generally. Hence the diminution in incomes between £60 and £100 in Table E. A clear statement of the condition of the agricultural labourers in Ireland is to be found in the reports of the Irish Poor Law Inspectors, 
1870. Footnote. Reports from the Poor Law Inspectors on the Wages of Agricultural Laborers in Dublin, 1870. See also Agricultural Laborers, Ireland, Return, etc. 8 March, 1861, London, 1862. End footnote. Officials of a government which is maintained only by bayonets and by a state of siege, now open, now disguised, they have to observe all the precautions of language that their colleagues in England disdain. In spite of this, however, they do not let their government cradle itself in illusions. According to them, the rate of wages in the country, still very low, has within the last twenty years risen fifty to sixty per cent, and stands now, on the average, at six shillings to nine shillings per week. But behind this apparent rise is hidden an actual fall in wages, for it does not correspond at all to the rise in price of the necessary means of subsistence that has taken place in the meantime. For proof, the following extract from the official accounts of an Irish workhouse. Average weekly cost per head. Year ended 29th of September 1849. Provisions and necessaries, one shilling, three and a quarter pence. Clothing, threepence. Total, one shilling, six and a quarter pence. 29th September 1869. Provisions and necessaries, two shillings, seven and a quarter pence. Clothing, sixpence. Total, three shillings, one and a quarter pence. The price of the necessary means of subsistence is therefore fully twice, and that of clothing exactly twice, as much as they were twenty years before. Even apart from this disproportion, the mere comparison of the rate of wages expressed in gold would give a result far from accurate. Before the famine, the great mass of agricultural wages were paid in kind, only the smallest part in money. Today, payment in money is the rule. From this it follows that, whatever the amount of the real wage, its money rate must rise. Quote, Previous to the famine, the labourer enjoyed his cabin, with a rood or half-acre or acre of land, and facilities for a crop of potatoes. He was able to rear his pig and keep fowl but they now have to buy bread, and they have no refuse upon which they can feed a pig or fowl, and they have consequently no benefit from the sale of a pig, fowl, or eggs. End quote. Footnote. Locusitato, pages 29 and 1. End footnote. In fact, formerly the agricultural labourers were but the smallest of the small farmers, and formed for the most part a kind of rear-guard of the medium and large farms on which they found employment. Only since the catastrophe of 1846 have they begun to form a fraction of the class of purely wage labourers, a special class connected with its wage masters only by monetary relations. We know what were the conditions of their dwellings in 1846. Since then they have grown yet worse. A part of the agricultural labourers, which, however, grows less day by day, dwell still on the holdings of the farmers in overcrowded huts, whose hideousness far surpasses the worst that the English agricultural labourers offered us in this way, and this holds generally with the exception of certain tracts of Ulster, in the south, in the counties of Cork, Limerick, Kilkenny, etc., in the east in Wicklow, Wexford, etc., in the centre of Ireland, in King's and Queen's County, Dublin, etc., in the west, in Sligo, Roscommon, Mayo, Galway, etc. Quote, the agricultural labourers' huts an inspector cries out, are a disgrace to the Christianity and to the civilization of this country. End quote. Footnote. 
Locasiteto, page 12, and footnote. In order to increase the attractions of these holes for the labourers, the pieces of land belonging thereto from time immemorial are systematically confiscated. Quote, the mere sense that they exist subject to this species of ban on the part of the landlords and their agents has given birth in the minds of the labourers to corresponding sentiments of antagonism and dissatisfaction towards those by whom they are thus led to regard themselves as being treated as a prescribed race. End quote. Footnote. Logositeto, page 12. End footnote. The first act of the agricultural revolution was to sweep away the huts situated on the field of labour. This was done on the largest scale, and as if in obedience to a command from on high. Thus many labourers were compelled to seek shelter in villages and towns. There they were thrown like refuge into garrets, holes, cellars and corners, in the worst black slums. Thousands of Irish families, who according to the testimony of the English, eaten up as these are with national prejudice, are notable for their rare attachment to the domestic hearth, for their gaiety and the purity of their home life, found themselves suddenly transplanted into hotbeds of vice. The men are now obliged to seek work of the neighbouring farmers, and are only hired by the day, and therefore under the most precarious form of wage. Hence, quote, They sometimes have long distances to go to and from work, often get wet, and suffer much hardship, not unfrequently ending in sickness, disease, and want. Footnote. Locusiteto, page 25. Footnote. Quote, the towns have had to receive from year to year what was deemed to be the surplus labor of the rural division. And then people still wonder there is still a surplus of labor in the towns and villages, and either a scarcity or a threatened scarcity in some of the country divisions. The truth is that this want only becomes perceptible in harvest time or during spring, at such times as agricultural operations are carried on with activity, at other periods of the year many hands are idle. That, from the digging out of the main crop of potatoes in October until the early spring following, there is no employment for them. And further, that during the active times they are subject to broken days and to all kinds of interruptions. End quote. Footnote. Locusiteto, pages 1, 25, 27, 31, and 32. End footnote. These results of the agricultural revolution, that is, the change of arable into pasture land, the use of machinery, the most rigorous economy of labor, etc., are still further aggravated by the model landlords who, instead of spending their rents in other countries, condescend to live in Ireland on their domains. In order that the law of supply and demand may not be broken, these gentlemen draw their labour supply chiefly from their small tenants, who are obliged to attend when required to do the landlord's work, at rates of wages, in many instances, considerably under the current rates paid to ordinary labourers, and without regard to the inconvenience or loss to the tenant of being obliged to neglect his own business at critical periods of sowing or reaping. End quote. Footnote, Logositeto, page 30. and footnote. The uncertainty and irregularity of employment, the constant return and long duration of gluts of labour, all these symptoms of a relative surplus population, figure, therefore, in the reports of the Poor Law Administration, as so many hardships of the agricultural proletariat. End 
it will be remembered that we met in the English agricultural proletariat with a similar spectacle. But the difference is that in England, an industrial country, the industrial reserve recruits itself from the country districts, whilst in Ireland, an agricultural country, the agricultural reserve recruits itself from the towns, the cities of refuge of the expelled agricultural labourers. In the former, the supernumeraries of agriculture are transformed into factory operatives. In the latter, those forced into the towns, whilst at the same time they press on the wages in towns, remain agricultural labourers, and are constantly sent back to the country districts in search of work. The official inspectors sum up the material condition of the agricultural labourer as follows. Quote, Though living with the strictest frugality, his own wages are barely sufficient to provide food for an ordinary family and pay his rent, and he depends upon other sources for the means of clothing himself, his wife, and children. The atmosphere of these cabins, combined with the other privations they are subjected to, has made this class particularly susceptible to low fever and pulmonary consumption. Footnote. Locusiteto, pages 21 and 13. And footnote. After this, it is no wonder that, according to the unanimous testimony of the inspectors, a sombre discontent runs through the ranks of this class, that they long for the return of the past, loathe the present, despair of the future, give themselves up to the evil influence of agitators, and have only one fixed idea, to emigrate to America. This is the land of cocaine, into which the great Malthusian panacea, depopulation, has transformed green Erin. What a happy life the Irish factory operative leads, one example will show. Quote, On my recent visit to the north of Ireland, says the English factory inspector Robert Baker, I met with the following evidence of effort in an Irish skilled workman to afford education to his children, and I give his evidence verbatim as I took it from his mouth. That he was a skilled factory hand may be understood when I say that he was employed on goods for the Manchester market. Johnson. I am a beetler and work from six in the morning till eleven at night, from Monday to Friday. Saturday we leave off at six p.m. and get three hours of it for meals and rest. I have five children in all. For this work I get ten shillings sixpence a week. My wife works here also and gets five shillings a week. The oldest girl, who is twelve, minds the house. She is also cook, and all the servant we have. She gets the young ones ready for school. A girl going past the house wakes me at half-past five in the morning. My wife gets up and goes along with me. We get nothing to eat before we come to work. The child of twelve takes care of the little children all the day, and we get nothing till breakfast at eight. At eight we go home. We get tea once a week. At other times we get stir-about, sometimes of oatmeal, sometimes of Indian meal, as we are able to get it. In the winter we get a little sugar and water to our Indian meal. In the summer we get a few potatoes, planting a small patch ourselves, and when they are done we get back to stir-about. Sometimes we get a little milk, as it may be. So we go on from day to day, Sunday and weekday, always the same the year round. I am always very much tired when I have done at night. We may see a bit of flesh meat sometimes, but very seldom. Three of our children attend school, for whom we pay one pence a week a head. Our rent is nine shillings a week. Peat for firing costs one shilling sixpence a fortnight at the very lowest. End quote. Footnote. 
Report of Inspectors of Factories, 31st October, 1866, page 96, and footnote. Such are Irish wages, such is Irish life. In fact, the misery of Ireland is again the topic of the day in England. At the end of 1866 and the beginning of 1867, one of the Irish land magnates, Lord Dufferin, set about its solution in the Times. Wie menschlich von solch großen Herrn! From Table E we saw that, during 1864, of £4,368,610 sterling of total profits, three surplus-value makers pocketed only £262,819 sterling, that in 1865, however, out of £4,669,979 sterling total profits, the same three virtuosi of abstinence pocketed £274,528 sterling. In 1864, 26 surplus-value makers reached to £646,377 sterling. In 1865, 28 surplus-value makers reached to £736,448 sterling. In 1864, 121 surplus-value makers, £1,076,912 sterling. In 1865, 150 surplus-value makers, one million three hundred twenty thousand nine hundred six pounds sterling. In eighteen sixty four, one thousand one hundred thirty one surplus value makers, two million one hundred fifty thousand eight hundred eighteen pounds sterlings, nearly half of the total annual profit. In eighteen sixty five, one thousand one hundred ninety four surplus value makers, two million four hundred eighteen thousand eight hundred thirty three pounds sterling more than half of the total annual profit. But the lion's share, which an inconceivably small number of land magnates in England, Scotland and Ireland swallow up of the yearly national rental, is so monstrous that the wisdom of the English state does not think fit to afford the same statistical materials about the distribution of rents as about the distribution of profits. Lord Dufferin is one of those land magnates. That rent rolls and profits can ever be excessive, or that their plethora is in any way connected with plethora of the people's misery is, of course, an idea as disreputable as unsound. He keeps to facts. The fact is that, as the Irish population diminishes, the Irish rentrolls swell. That depopulation benefits the landlords, therefore also benefits the soil, and therefore the people, that mere accessory of the soil. He declares, therefore, that Ireland is still overpopulated, and the stream of emigration still flows too lazily. To be perfectly happy, Ireland must get rid of at least one-third of a million of labouring men. Let no man imagine that this lord, poetic into the bargain, is a physician of the school of Sangredo, who as often as he did not find his patient better, ordered phlebotomy, and again phlebotomy, until the patient lost his sickness at the same time as his blood. Lord Dufferin demands a new bloodletting of one-third of a million only, instead of about two millions. In fact, without the getting rid of these, the millennium in Erin is not to be. The proof is easily given. Centralization has from 1851 to 1861 destroyed principally farms of the first three categories, under one and not over fifteen acres. These, above all, must disappear. 
this gives three hundred and seven thousand and fifty-eight supernumerary farmers and reckoning the families the low average of four persons one million two hundred and twenty-eight thousand two hundred and thirty-two persons on the extravagant supposition that after the agricultural revolution is complete one-fourth of these are again absorbable there remain for emigration nine hundred and twenty one thousand one hundred and seventy four persons categories four five six of over fifteen and not over one hundred acres are as was known long since in england too small for capitalistic cultivation of corn and for sheep breeding are almost vanishing quantities on the same supposition as before therefore there are further seven hundred eighty eight thousand seven hundred sixty one persons to emigrate total one million seven hundred and nine thousand five hundred thirty two and as la petite vient et mangeant randrell's eyes will soon discover that ireland with three and a half millions is still always miserable and miserable because she is overpopulated therefore her depopulation must go yet further that thus she may fulfil her true destiny that of an english sheep-walk and cattle pasture footnote how the famine and its consequences have been deliberately made the most of both by the individual landlords and by the english legislator to forcibly carry out the agricultural revolution and to thin the population of ireland down to the proportion satisfactory to the landlords i shall show more fully in volume three of this work in the section on landed property there also i return to the condition of the small farmers and the agricultural labourers at present only one quotation nassau w senior says with other things in his posthumous work journals conversations and essays related to ireland two volumes london eighteen hundred and sixty eight volume two page two hundred and eighty two quote, well said dr g we have got our poor law and it is a great instrument for giving the victory to the landlords another and a still more powerful instrument is emigration no friend to ireland can wish the war to be prolonged between the landlords and the small celtic farmers still less that it should end by the victory of the tenants the sooner it is over the sooner ireland becomes a grazing country with a comparatively thin population which a grazing country requires the better for all classes the english corn laws of eighteen fifteen secured ireland the monopoly of the free importation of corn into great britain they favoured artificially therefore the cultivation of corn with the abolition of the corn laws in eighteen forty six this monopoly was suddenly removed apart from all other circumstances this event alone was sufficient to give a great impulse to the turning of irish arable into pasture land to the concentration of arms and to the eviction of small cultivators after the fruitfulness of the irish soil had been praised from eighteen fifteen to eighteen forty six and proclaimed loudly as by nature herself destined for the cultivation of wheat english agronomists economists politicians discover suddenly that it is good for nothing but to produce forage m leon de lavaigne has hastened to repeat this on the other side of the channel it takes a serious man a la lavaigne to be caught by such childishness and footnote like all good things in this bad world this profitable method has its drawbacks with the accumulation of rents in ireland the accumulation of the irish in america keeps pace the irishman banished by sheep and ox reappears on the other side of the ocean as a fenian and face to face with the old queen of the seas rises 
threatening and more threatening the young giant republic. Acerba feta Romanus agent, scalesque fraterni nisus. End of Part 7, Chapter 25, Section 5, Part F.